about death is uncomfortable. We think if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Sadly, this isn't true. It's the only thing in life that we can be certain about. And because we don't talk about it, often we don't know what to do when we experience the death of a loved one. My name is Fiona Garvin and this is Deadly Serious Conversations. I'll be talking to a range of people who will share their knowledge and experience so we can learn how to make dying part of living. Today on this episode, I chat to my beautiful friend and colleague Meg Marshall. Meg has been living with a terminal diagnosis for many years. She was initially diagnosed with breast cancer at the tender age of 28 and since then has been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And she's been very busy living ever since. Thankfully, she is really well at the moment, but she has made many plans to ensure that her affairs are in order to make it easier for her loved ones come a time when she's not here. Meg talks openly and honestly, and I have no doubt her story will offer hope and help others. So, Meg, you have been living with the diagnosis for some time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is like? Sure. So I was initially diagnosed back in May 2009 at the ripe old age of 28 and was very grateful and lucky in that I had a GP who took me very seriously when I came in and said, I have this funny lump under my arm. Can we have a look at it, please? And within a week had been for a mammogram and a ultrasound and then a biopsy and had confirmed, yes, you have breast cancer. So very, very quickly you jump on that roller coaster whether you want to or not. And within three weeks of that initial diagnosis was having surgery. So I had what's called a lumpectomy, um, which means they just move the lump as opposed to the entire breast, so it's breast cancer. Uh, also had the lymph nodes in my right arm removed. I then had chemo uh, for about six months and then radiation and then I had some follow-up treatment for about a year afterwards. And then they sort of monitor you for, for a period of time and they sort of say that the, the danger window is the first five years. If you're likely to get a recurrence, it will happen sometime in those first five years. So five years came and went and life kind of continued as normal and everything was great. And then in March, probably about January, actually, 2016, I was rubbing my neck one night after a particularly long day at work, as you do, and thought, oh, that's a bit of a funny feeling lump. And lo and behold, we were back on that roller coaster again. So... Um, they found that the cancer had spread to the lymph nodes in my uh, the right-hand side of my neck. And I also had a small um, patch of cancer in the bone in my right hip. So because it had spread outside of what they call that localised area, I then became what they call stage four. So at that point in time, the technical diagnosis is that they will now never cure me of cancer it is only a case of how do we control that cancer. And the good news is four years and six months later, I'm still here. Um, Martha, as we affectionately have named my cancer, um, 
And I don't think you have an explicit rating on this podcast, so I won't tell you why she's called Martha. Um, <laughs> is well and truly under control. So my last scan in June showed what we say is no evidence of active disease so that they can see that there's potentially still some cancer there, but it's well and truly under control. Um, it's not actively growing. The cells aren't really active themselves, um, which is really as best you can hope for with a stage four diagnosis. I still continue to have um, a very targeted form of chemo every three weeks. The good part about that chemo is it's not a big, ugly, systematic chemo. So I've been able to grow my hair back. I typically don't get nauseous. You don't get that sort of steroid puffy look. The downside, obviously, is that it is still chemo and so it does affect you. And for me, it makes me feel like I have the flu for a good sort of two weeks of the three weeks, which is pretty average. But at the same time, I'm still, I still work part-time um, like yourself. I'm still a celebrant. Fantastic. And so, Meg, you mentioned stage four. Excuse my ignorance, but... Yep. So when you're diagnosed with cancer, they give you two elements to the cancer. They grade your cancer, which talks about what the level of aggression is, and then they stage it. And staging is about how far it's spread, really. So initially when I was diagnosed, I was what they call stage 1B. So technically it was still in um, the local area. So it hadn't really spread beyond the breast at that point in time. The B was because it was starting to be in some of the lymph nodes. So a stage two is then there's spread from the local area to local lymph nodes. Stage three is that it is spread, but it's still within a localised area. So say, for instance, the when the cancer came back, it was just in the lymph nodes in my neck. Potentially, they might have staged it as a stage three because it's relatively close to where the original site of the cancer was, although unusually for breast cancer, it typically goes down the body, not up. So I've always liked to be a little unusual, (laughs) um, and mine's gone up and down. And then stage four means that it's well and truly beyond that original localised zone. So because it's spread to my bones and because that bone is quite distant from the original breast site although interestingly it's all in the right hand side of my body and none in the left at this stage Touch okay. yeah and so what does life look like for you um you mentioned you're having chemo every three weeks is there any other you know, anything else that it impacts your life at the moment so i suppose i'm i'm in quite a fortunate position in that pre even the cancer coming back I had left my full-time corporate job. So I started my working life in corporate HR and worked in relatively senior roles with lots of responsibility, lots of stress, lots of long hours. And I did that for about 15 years uh, until I kind of got into my early 30s and went, life is way too short to be doing this. Um, There's got to be more to life than this and so that was when I actually left and became a celebrant and so I had already started to try and find a little bit more balance in my life. One of the biggest things that changed with the stage four diagnosis was very much about okay let's look at what this bucket list is for me and how do we tick as much off it as possible. Um, 
And so for those, of, uh, those who know me well, know that I love to travel. So um, one of the very first things I did with that stage four diagnosis was I got a very large map of the world, uh, one of those scratch off maps. I sat down with a bottle of wine and my husband and a box of pins. And we said, where are all the places that we wanna go? And where are the things that are top of the list? and basically started to plan to travel. So in the last four and a half years, God, I don't know how many countries I've been to now. Uh, the record year was the year we did Hong Kong, Cambodia, Vietnam, Apollo Bay, Bali, Mauritius, Spain, Morocco, Switzerland, Finland, Sweden, and Prague. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a little bit too much, we learnt. Um, we were travel fatigued by the end of that. But certainly travel has become a big, big component of my life, which makes life a little frustrating as we sit in COVID times. But it's very much about now finding that balance. And what was probably one of the things I really had to learn was one of my jobs now is to actually rest and to look after myself. And I have to think about it as a job, otherwise I don't do it. Um, so I, as I mentioned, I still work part-time. Um, I'm a celebrant, so I still um, marry people. Um, I'm also still doing some HR consulting. So I do that. I'm contracted to, to, to do two days a week, but I spread that over three days. So thankfully my employer is very flexible and I do three shorter days, which is great because I'm not a good sleeper. So I'm not great first thing in the morning. So um, that means I can start work at about 9.30, quarter to 10, and I work until about 3, 3.30 on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. And then the other big thing in my life is animals. So children were never a factor for my husband and I. We never wanted them, thankfully. Um, potentially medically, I might have been able to have children. I don't know. We never really explored that path because it wasn't something that was of interest to us. Um, we much prefer our babies to be four-legged. So... One of the things I've been able to throw myself back into is fostering with my local animal shelter. Um, and listeners, apologies if you do hear any squeaks, although I think they have actually fallen asleep. I have got foster kittens at the moment, so I have two little four-week-old um, kittens that are in the room with me as well, but I do think they've finally fallen asleep. Oh, yeah, and they're beautiful. I've seen them. <laughs> Gorgeous. And Meg, have you made any decision about putting any plans in place or have you made your wishes clear about what you would like to happen or have you any thoughts around all of that? Absolutely. So my nature is that I'm a very organised and planned person. I've also been, um, so I've lost both of my parents. My father passed when I was relatively young. So I was 20 when my father passed. Um, and then my mum passed about 10 years later. And interestingly, my dad passed relatively suddenly. Um, my mum was a lot slower process. And so as a loved one, I've been through the process of having to deal with a sudden passing of a loved one and a more longer term passing of a loved one. But still that sort of grief process of oh my, what do we do now and what are their wishes? And thankfully, certainly with my mum, we had a very good idea of what her wishes are. My husband, bless him, is a lovely, lovely man, but he is not the best at emotional things. Um, and so he is somebody who I think will very much appreciate a plan. 
and probably actually expects a plan. <laughs> um, and I also have a great best friend who is somebody who shares my sort of dark hallows humour um, and is somebody who I can very much say, send a random text to to say, hey, store this one in the message bank. I just had this thought, can we do this at my funeral? Or uh, whatever you do, do not do this at my funeral I will, or I will come back and haunt you for the rest of my life. So certainly one of the few things that we um, did from a practical perspective is we both have wills, we both have powers of attorney, um, medical, financial and enduring um, powers of attorney. We've talked about do I want to be cremated, do I want to be buried, do I want a big funeral, do I want a small funeral, um, what all of that stuff looks like. It is very strange being a couple in your, well, we're now late 30s, early 40s, um, but at the time when I was diagnosed um, a stage four, it was sort of in my mid-30s. And for me, I wanted to know exactly what that meant. So I very much pushed my doctors to say, give me a time frame. And certainly my experience has been that's quite tricky for them to do um, and they're often quite reluctant to do it because it can be a little bit how long is a piece of string and interestingly so when so when officially I was kind of diagnosed stage four initially I had a little bit longer the first round of treatment didn't work so well and so they sort of said to me we think you've got about five years left now technically that five years runs out in about six months I still talk to my oncologist about it regularly and say, hey, where do we think we're at with that time scale? And at the moment, we basically say, well, we think the kind of clock keeps resetting at five years at the moment. The treatment I'm on is working quite well. It's keeping my cancer very stable um, and under control. And we know we've got a few more lines of defence to still go. So we've sort of still got that five-year time frame, which is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because it is a little bit hard to plan. If you, I often say to my husband, if I had 18 months left, it'd be easier because I would just say, screw work, screw responsibilities. I'm drinking verve and traveling first class and doing all the amazing things. But there is still a bit of a, well, we can't blow all the money yet because <laughs> I could still be here in five years time. So um, hence there is still a little bit of a responsibility to work. But at the same time, I do feel very blessed in that not many people do get a look into the crystal ball and a chance to sort of go, well, okay, I'm really going to live every day like it's potentially some of my last because it very well could be. And so I turn 40 in two months. <laughs> I had planned the mother of all parties. Uh, COVID-19 then happened. So it's slightly on hold until March next year, but certainly I plan to celebrate 40 in style because there's a very good chance it will be my last big milestone birthday that I will reach. So all the way from sort of those kind of big things to even little simple things like I have a spreadsheet with where all it. So I'm, my husband calls me the Minister for War and Finance. So I manage <laughs> the house here, but I have a spreadsheet of here's where everything is, here's what the passwords are to everything, here's where our super is, here's how much we have in our super, all the way through to making sure my husband knows how to cook his favourite foods. We have a, a recipe book where I've printed out or typed up recipes for all the favourite stuff that he knows how to make. So starting to teach 
him some of the stuff that I just naturally do at the moment because we've got that kind of window of knowing, well, I'm not going to be here forever. So let's make sure we set you up as yeah. best as possible. And there's that garbage bin man again. <laughs> Yeah, what, what a, an amazing thing to do. And I'm sure Scott will greatly appreciate it. And so Meg, what are some of the things that you might suggest to offer support to someone who may have been given a terminal diagnosis? I get asked this question a lot. And it's a really interesting one because everybody's path through this is really, really different. And lots of people say to me, my God, you're so grounded about this diagnosis. How are you so okay with it? And I think for me, so my father was 54 when he passed. My mum was 65. I suppose I always knew that I was here for a good time, not a long time. You kind of look at that science of genetics and think, well, it's unlikely I'm going to live until I'm 100. So I probably already had a bit of that mindset of, make those days count. I remember an old family friend of ours when my dad passed who'd lost their daughter the previous year and she said to me, and it's always stuck with me, I now live every day for me and the days that Emily didn't get. And I very much from the age of 20 had that mindset of I live every day for me and the days my dad didn't get. And very much now I live every day for me. But I think you need to be really as empathetic as you can be for where that person might be at. So for me, it's laugh at the jokes because that's how I deal. I deal with humour and sometimes they are really dark hallows humour and sometimes I know I've gone a bit too far. But (laughs) if you can be that person for somebody where it's, yeah, you can laugh at the hard times If they want to talk about their funeral, let them talk about their funeral. I know it's hard for you, but that's something that's going to give them comfort. But if they don't want to talk about it, let them not talk about it. Also, don't push it on them if that's not where they're at. There's a really fantastic um, diagram, and I'm sure you've already seen it, Fiona. If not, I'll, I'll send it through and you might be able to link it to this podcast or something about the rings of grief and... If you are that person, the sort of the centre person is the person that's impacted and each ring is the people that are closest to that person and obviously the further out you, you are from that person, the further out you are in the rings. And it talks about the fact that you give comfort in and you seek support out. So, for instance, if it was my husband that was the one with the diagnosis, then I would look to comfort him and in times when I needed support as the carer, I would seek some comfort from somebody else on a further outside ring. So I might go to my best friend to seek comfort or support, not from that person who's grieving. You really want to just be as supportive as you can to that Mm. person. I have a wonderful, beautiful, dear friend who even now, four years on, still comes and drops food at my door on occasions and will always comment on the fact that it's not the most gourmet of meals or it doesn't have a dessert with it or something and it's always the most beautifully home-cooked food. Her name happens to be Fiona. She has this beautiful Irish accent. (laughs) And just those little things because sometimes people don't know what they need. And so just being the one to say, let me drop a meal off or let me drive you to chemo or let me come and clean the house for you takes away that having to think about what do I actually need for help. 
Yeah, and I'm sure you'll agree. It's very hard to ask for help. So you're right. We don't often know what we need, but just being given something is a real gift. Yeah. And I think to understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So whether it's somebody with a, a first cancer diagnosis or a stage four cancer diagnosis, cancer is a marathon. And so everybody comes out of the woodwork when you first get diagnosed and you get inundated with flowers and meals and support. And then life goes on for everybody else. And four weeks later or six weeks later, everyone's moved on with your life, their lives, but you're still having chemo and you're still going through treatment and you're still wrapping your head around it and everyone's moved on. And that's really when it's that phone call check-in or that meal drop-off means even more. And again, four and a half years on, it's the friends that still check in and say, how are you doing? How's chemo going? How are you feeling? And I suppose my last piece of advice is, but also keep sharing with them the stuff that's going on in your life. If I had a dollar for every time someone's been having a, a whinge or event and they've gone, oh, but it's nothing compared to what you're going through. It's like, well, yeah, it might not be, but it's big for you. And I still want to be a friend and a support to you. So let me still do that. Don't discount my ability to do that just because I've also got some stuff I'm going through. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Absolutely. Thank you, Meg, for, for sharing that with us. Um, I see you're having a little drink. What's your drink of choice this morning? My drink of choice this morning is actually Barocca. <laughs> so my latest blood tests have said I'm a little bit low in phosphate. And so my oncologist has recommended a daily Barocca. So it's not very uh, warm or inspiring on this weird Melbourne morning, but hey, that's working for me. I know you said that you don't sleep very well, so that'll help the day get started as well. And it's, it's my substitute for coffee at the moment. So, yes, hopefully it's helping with the sleep. Yeah. And so with chemo, does that mean that you can't eat or drink? Does it limit your ability to drink wine? or? Um, I go through various phases with food. Certainly my, my very first question when I was diagnosed was, will I still be able to drink wine? <laughs> and my oncologist said, if you feel like a glass of wine, you have a glass of wine. Um, I did go through a patch where wine tasted awful, which was devastating. Mm. For me, it's more that I crave certain things. So again, first time round, all I wanted was savoury. Um, ham and cheese toasted sandwiches, cheese and bacon rolls, I don't know, something about dairy and pork products. This time round, it's sweet. Ice cream, meringues, strawberries, chocolate. Yeah, I will happily just have a bowl of ice cream for dinner some days. And again, I just say to myself, you know what, if that's what you want and that's what your body needs, then that's okay. If you're not doing it every night, be kind to yourself. Yeah, there are no heroes, so no. take what you need and, and don't feel guilty about it. So, Meg, thank you so much for sharing your oh, story. Oh, you're most welcome. <laughs> I know for most of us, death is a really tough subject at the best at times, but even when you know that your time may be limited, I'm sure it's even harder to think about but I know I speak on behalf of everyone when I say a big, big thank you. Thank you for being so open and for being honest and strong. And I want to thank you for being you. Oh, my love. Oh, you're such a good friend. You're incredible. And I love you absolutely loads. And I appreciate you sharing your time and your story with us today. So thank you. See you so my darling. Mwah. Big love. <laughs> you too. 